Hi, survivors and thrivers. Welcome to the Narcissism Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and today I am doing my first true crime deep dive. And what that means is that I've been researching a particular case that deals with narcissistic abuse and specifically narcissistic rage. And just a trigger warning right at the top of the episode, this case does deal with violence, particularly violence against women, homicide, a lot of narcissistic personality disorder, obviously, and all that comes with it. So if any of that is going to be upsetting to you, please skip this episode, find another one of my episodes to listen to or another podcast for today, because this is going to be a little bit of a heavier episode than we're used to. And I just wanted to say right at the top, um, a little warning there. So next week's episode will be back to kind of more my regular feed. This is just going to be an occasional thing that I do. And on that note, let's just get right into it. The case that I have decided to discuss this week is that of Allison Baden Clay, and she was murdered in Queensland, Australia in 2012. And the focus was pretty much immediately on her husband, Gerard Baden Clay. There are strong grounds for concluding that he had narcissistic personality disorder and essentially that is what led to Allison's demise. So I really don't want to get into the gory details of Allison's murder. That's not why I'm discussing this case. It's not really what I'm interested in, but I do want to talk a little bit about what happened to her because she is a victim and she deserves to have her story heard. Allison Baden Clay was last seen alive on the night of April 19th, 2012. The following morning when they arrived at the family home, police immediately noticed scratches on the cheeks of her husband, Gerard, who reported that he had cut himself shaving. 10 days later, Allison's body was found on a creek bed under a bridge, pretty much right next to the family home or within a reasonable distance from the family home. Because of how badly, and I'm sorry to, again, mention this, but I do want to tell her story. Because of how badly she was decomposed at the point where they found her, the subsequent autopsy was unable to determine the cause of her death. However, six weeks later, her husband was charged with murder. So there was a trial and basically Australian court works much differently than court here in the U.S. But from what I've researched, there was a guilty verdict eventually reached. It kind of teetered between manslaughter and, um, and what we would call first degree murder. But essentially he was eventually found guilty. And there has been a lot of debate 
over why he would kill her, why this could possibly happen to Allison. And I just want to get into his history briefly before we talk about the specifics of the case and why narcissistic personality disorder is most likely the reason that Allison ended up killed. Gerard Baden-Clay was born on September 9th, 1970, and spent his early childhood in Zimbabwe. He is the great-grandson of, and get ready for this name, Lieutenant General Robert Stevenson Smith Baden-Powell, and he was a lieutenant in the British Army. So, essentially, he made a name for himself in the Army. He was kind of a war hero, or considered a war hero. And after he retired from the army in 1908, he founded the Boy Scouts, which is for a different episode of this podcast. If you know anything about the Boy Scouts in the United States right now, they are in a whole mess with the way that they treat young men and people, but we will get into that another time possibly. So when Gerard was 10, his family moved to Australia and when he got there, he attended a really prestigious grammar school, uh, a boys' school, and he later got his undergrad in business. And in 1995, he was working as a bookkeeper with a travel company, and that's when he met Allison. And Allison was a, a human resources person at this company, and that's how they met. So in 1997, they get married. And after that, they have three daughters. So from an early age, Gerard knew he was special, or at least felt that he was special because of his family's history. He became a self-promoter and he was known for regularly referring to his lineage and his family's history. In his offices at a real estate business that he would later own, he would prominently display a portrait of his grandfather and would, again, just like n tell anyone that would listen to him about his great-grandfather and his history. So unfortunately, though, by 2012, the year that Allison was murdered, Despite his real estate company and all of these endeavors, Gerard really had no substantial assets. And according to a lot of the research I've done and a lot of the people that gave testimonies, for the six years prior to Allison's murder, the family was really going through it. They were renting, you know, just like a modest house, nothing over the top, but they were also dealing with a failing business and they were heavily in debt. Even though during this time, Gerard inserted himself into the community, would boast himself as an industry leader. He gained a membership with the local chamber of commerce, which is kind of important. And he essentially was having this fantasy of this huge success in his life that just was not happening. And that's actually a trait of narcissistic personality disorder is, um, a fantasy of success or self grandiose. So in 2004, just to backtrack a little bit before uh, the murder in 2012, 
after less than a year in his first uh, real estate agent position with a company whose name doesn't matter, he was secretly leasing offices next door to where he was employed and entered into a franchise agreement with a rival real estate agency. And in all of his sales pitches, he would be in the habit of disparaging his competitors, talking crap about the people that had just given him his first chance at employment as a real estate agent. He essentially uh, created a blog where he would write these really self-aggrandizing posts about how he was just the best in the business and highlighting all of these amazing things about himself, that he was a regular church attender and a family man and a father and a husband. And again, as you probably guessed, talking about his great-grandfather and all of the successes with the Boy Scouts, if you want to even call it that. So this guy definitely thought that he was the shit and he certainly was not so following his membership with the local chamber of commerce he actually sparked up a friendship in a very goal-driven sort of way so he cultivated a friendship with this wealthy local state member of parliament and he was also facebook friends and on social media engaging with a lot of other party members in parliament and in 2004 he actually became president of the local chamber of commerce and he was later photographed a couple of times with then prime minister kevin rudd so if you don't really know anything or like me know very little about australian politics this is like a very very big deal the prime minister is essentially their president and members of parliament is essentially like congress or members of the house here he was pushing paper and pushing lord only knows what else with these people in very very high places of power so that's just something to keep in mind that fueled his sense of importance that he was special and unique which really leads to a sense of entitlement which was reflected in his expectation of this favorable treatment from these lawmakers. And he would like retaliate if his value was not recognized. So essentially in April, 2007, a married mother of two 14 year old boys started work at his real estate business. She later testified at the trial for Allison's murder that by at least August 2008, she was in an affair with Gerard. And in November of 2009, she actually separated from her husband to be with this guy. She said that Gerard basically expected her to maintain and conceal the affair, even though she decided to leave her husband. So I'm going to take a moment to just use this to illustrate my own experiences. As I've spoken about on previous episodes, I've dealt with infidelity and my narcissistic relationship this is something that is extremely common with a narcissist extremely extremely common it's like an adrenaline feed for them an ego feed it's literally like a drug addict or somebody struggling with alcoholism engaging in their activities it's the same kind of addictive feed And it does not surprise me at all that there was some kind of affair situation happening here. 
another instance of this guy's entitlement was that he asked his brother and friends to lend him money and when his real estate business fell more heavily into debt he expected those business partners to not only remain with him but to share the debt of the company gerard actually ended up borrowing a total of two hundred and seventy thousand dollars from his brother and three of his friends but never repaid any of those loans so in december of 2011 a year before allison was murdered he asked wealthy um members of parliament uh to basically help him out and he ended up with another loan of four hundred thousand dollars and this was an unsecured loan which basically means that there was no collateral there was no nothing this was just money handed to this guy by people in power and in March of 2012, the year that Allison was killed, he made another request to members of parliament for even more money. So this guy was just up to his ears in affairs and debt and lies and just in way over his head. So on the day that police reported that a body had been found in that creek bank, there was, uh, and before there was like a formal identification of Allison there was an alert on her life insurance policy the following day he advised the insurer that he planned to make a claim on her policies so she has not even been missing for a day at this point so then after that he basically sought a uh, a death certificate as a matter of urgency she hadn't been found at this point and altogether he received a $975,000 payment upon the death of Allison Baden-Clay. The sense of entitlement that is described in the little bit that I just told you is honestly very typical of a narcissist, and it still overwhelms me, even though it's very typical of a lot of stories that I've read. This man had no regard for other people's well-being, especially his wife's. It is clear that he killed her for the insurance money. And the sense of entitlement, again, is just beyond me. I feel bad if I ask somebody for too many favors, and I can't even imagine taking these amounts of money from people and just not caring to pay them back, doing nothing to make it happen. And then my last resort is killing my significant other. It just does not even compute in my brain. But again, the sense of entitlement is very, very typical in a narcissistic personality disorder situation. And I definitely experienced this in my personal relationship, uh, of course not to this level, but with my ex. Um, I would like to think that he would never murder anybody, but I do know that there were moments where I thought, man, you seem to feel very, very entitled to this, even if it feels wrong to me or others. 
not necessarily with money, but as I mentioned, Gerard did have an affair. And as we will get into, he had multiple affairs. That is also a sense of entitlement, not only over another woman's life and body, but it's an entitlement to the consent of your partner, to the feelings of your partner. You feel entitled to completely take over your partner's ability to decide who is in your relationship and how. And this sense of entitlement really acts as a catalyst to these affairs, not only shady financial affairs, but shady emotional and physical affairs outside of a significant relationship. So a sense of entitlement is definitely something that I would consider a red flag in a situation where you think you might be dealing with a narcissist. Not only did Gerard Baden Clay exhibit a sense of entitlement, he also exhibited a lack of empathy in a few ways. So it's been reported that during his very first conversation with police after Allison was reported missing, he highlighted her history of treatment for depression. And in his later evidence, he emphasized how many of his needs were not met when Allison experienced episodes of depression. So basically from the beginning, trying to turn the tables around on her, gaslight the police, rewrite his own narrative. And during his evidence at trial, he described how Allison's antidepressant medication had reduced her libido and how she had gained weight. So essentially, my wife was a deadbeat depressed woman who couldn't satisfy me in bed. So what else could I do but have affairs and, you know, go behind her back and just not have a true marriage with this woman? And further illustrating that point, When he was going to marriage counseling with Allison at one point, he was actively engaging in having affairs. So this is just not a good person. At trial, he testified that he did not love the women that he was having affairs with, but he was effectively using them, describing the relationships as just physical. And he also asserted that he continued to sleep with a couple of these women because he did not want to lose good employees. And this is going to really hurt to talk about, but I told you guys that I was going to. So this illustrates a huge, huge point of contention in my marriage. And when I was with my ex, we, first of all, he would project his insecurities of infidelity onto me all of the time not only because of his own history with infidelity, but because he was actively cheating on me. Uh, Physically, certainly in the beginning of our marriage, and then emotionally pretty much throughout. So these projections of infidelity onto me would just make no sense because, I mean, I had no time to cheat on him, to be honest. Like, not that I didn't think about it sometimes, but I had no time because I was essentially a single mother married to a narcissist. So I would hear these phrases uttered by my ex sometimes, like, you know, I hope you wouldn't blame me if you gained a lot of weight and I lost attraction to you. I hope that you understand that men have a different need for sex than women do, and that my libido is essentially insatiable and 
he would be very candid with me about the rage that he would feel during these windows of time where he was extremely sexually activated, I guess it would be the right, uh, maybe PG way of saying it when he really, really wanted something. He would feel these waves of rage and he would tell me about it. He would have these visions of like violently taking women in a sexual manner. And this is why I gave you a trigger warning at the top of the episode, because it's really awful. He would explain these fantasies to me in detail, not only in a non-sexual environment, but also when I was trying to satisfy him sexually, he would bring up these situations of sexual violence and frustration and would say very, very hateful things and violent things about women. To my knowledge, he has never acted on any of those things, to my knowledge, but he definitely had a sex addiction, which is also very, very common in a narcissistic person. He used to try to gaslight me and make me think that sexual addiction wasn't a thing, and I still kind of have opinions on that that a lot of people may be uncomfortable with. I do think it takes a lot more than just liking sex a lot to be a sex addict. When I say that he was a sex addict, it used to disrupt our lives. It used to cause fights. It used to deeply hurt me how he engaged in sex, how often he engaged in watching pornography, needing to flirt with other women, either online or in person. Again, like I said, he did cheat on me. These are things that I never even suspected in my marriage because he would hide everything so well. There would not be a single piece of evidence left behind after he had either physically or emotionally cheated on me. I remember there were some medical issues going on in the beginning of our marriage and he needed to go under anesthesia for um, a, a procedure. And I remember thinking that he was irrationally afraid of being put under, like to a point of he was almost paralyzed with fear, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. He was just so distraught over it. And I just kept telling him, like, it's going to be okay. They do this every day. It's okay. Like, they're not going to give you too much. You're going to be fine because he did have anxiety around his health and I just was so confused about why he was so terrified of it. Come to find out, when he admitted that he was cheating on me, he finally came clean about why he was so terrified to go under anesthesia, and it's because he didn't want to wake up in a daze, groggy and drugged, and tell me that he had been cheating on me, or call me by the wrong name or do anything to leave any sliver of doubt in my mind that I was the only woman that he was with, even though that was far, far from the truth. And this is not to say that a cheater is going to turn into a murderer. This is only to say that that is a very common trait among narcissistic people, is this tendency to seek out ego-feeding just toxic situations that 
really end up hurting people in the end. It's unfortunate, but it's very common. So a couple of red flags that I would tell you to look out for would be getting on a computer or a device that your significant other has and there's like no search history. There's no previous conversations on their Facebook. There's nothing like there's not a crumb of interaction with other people. My ex used to gaslight me and tell me it's because he didn't like clutter in his inbox. But what was actually happening is that he was going in and deleting everything from any place that he could think of to hide it from me for years while simultaneously and routinely going through all of my messages on my phone, on my computer, my emails, my pictures. I mean, he would do deep dives on what I was doing on my device. So definitely something to look out for and something that is illustrated in this case. Unfortunately for Allison Baden Clay, the personality traits of this man were the factors that led to her death. He had this false sense of importance, this fantasy of success. He came from a family that probably expected success and made him feel special and unique his entire life until he got to adulthood and didn't live up to their expectations. His sense of entitlement, his shady dealings, and his arrogance thinking that he could get away with all of these things, how manipulative he was, his lack of empathy after his wife went missing, and his arrogant behaviors about the role that she played in their house and basically justifying his affairs in his defense. Part of his official defense was that Allison had started taking medication that was causing her to gain weight and lower her libido and made her essentially not a good wife. So he cheated on her and the audacity, the bluntness of it, the gaslighting, it just is honestly terrifying. Narcissistic people are truly some of the most complex and terrifying people that I think you could come into contact with. And while we all have narcissistic traits, I'm talking about somebody with violent narcissistic personality disorder. It can get very, very dangerous, especially because these people are usually extremely charming and know how to get what they want. It's, it, it, blinds, it blindsides you. You don't think it's going to happen to you. You don't think that you can be manipulated the way that these people are able to manipulate. And I mean, I was one of those people. I thought that there's no way that it could happen to me. I would read other people's stories and think, oh my God, like my situation is nothing like that. It would never get this extreme. Like, yes, we fight. Yes, we have our differences, but there's just no way. And then when I went through my separation and my divorce and started to really evaluate the relationship I was in, I saw that there were so many potentials for things to get a lot worse than they did not necessarily even in a violent way. I would hope that it would never get to that, but I'm not going to lie and say that the thought never crossed my mind that my ex could have hurt me. My ex could have hurt my child. 
my situation ended up a lot better than many, many people's situations do. And I really just want to send my condolences, even though they probably won't ever hear this, to Allison's family, the three daughters that she left behind, and to all women and men and in-betweens out there who have found themselves in an awful, toxic, scary situation. Personally, I feel for you. I know where you're coming from. And I just want you to know that there are ways to stay safe. And there are resources if you need them. If you do find yourself in a situation where you feel threatened, I would highly recommend reaching out to 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-7233. They are a completely anonymous, safe number to call, and it's just a good place to start. Even if you're not sure if you are unsafe, if you just need somebody to talk to, if you just need a little bit of help. And as always, my Instagram messages are open. My email is also open. I am not a therapist or a doctor, but I am certainly a safe space for survivors and for people either recovering or going through narcissistic abuse. And I just want to thank you for tuning into this week's episode and for listening to Allison's story. I hope that it helped in some way to illustrate how bad things really can get with a narcissist. And my main goal is to just get the point across that these behaviors should not be taken lightly. They are called red flags for a reason. They needed to be treated as such. And you are not crazy for thinking that you're in one of these situations. I've said it in a couple of episodes, but no narcissistic situation is ever the same. Behaviors will vary. Instances of abuse will vary. And if you are even questioning if you are in an abusive or toxic situation, I would recommend evaluating that, taking the steps that you feel are necessary because you are having that feeling for a reason. You are not crazy. There is probably somebody in your life who's trying to make you feel like you are crazy if you're listening to this podcast, or you know how that feels to have your reality just completely bent by somebody insisting that they're not hurting you, that they're only doing something for your own good. But if something in your gut is telling you that it's wrong, then it probably is. And again, my Instagram and email is open, and that number again is 800 799-7233. safe 800-799-7233. My Instagram, as you guys probably already know, it's in the show notes as well, is the Narcissism Podcast. Pretty easy to find. And remember, the email is thenarcpod at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-N-A-R-C pod at gmail.com. I can't even tell you how honored I am when I receive a message about somebody finding some solace and some help in this podcast. I 
really am always so happy to hear from listeners, even if it's about something that I got wrong or something you felt I needed to elaborate on more or leave out of an episode. Any feedback from you is so welcome. And I am just so honored that you that you take the time to listen to these episodes. And I am going to get back to a quote unquote normal episode week after next. I'll be touching on another topic about narcissistic abuse, of course, but it will be more of a kind of short, uplifting, hopefully affirming episode about how to deal with some of the aspects of narcissistic abuse. I'm probably going to dive into financial abuse because that was also a huge aspect of the relationship that I was in. And I just always feel like my best episodes are ones that I can relate to because it has to deal with my own situation as well. So um, if you guys have any ideas about anything you want me to cover, again, please feel free to reach out. I'm happy to have guests on. It's really easy to do. I am open to that. So if you have a story you would like to share or anything you would like to promote when it comes to narcissistic abuse, some a book that you're writing, a podcast that you have, whatever it may be, please feel free to reach out to me. We can collaborate. I'll, my, my main goal with that collaboration is to just get as many ears and eyes as I can on these topics because they are so important and really not spoken about enough. We all need to be more on guard for when the narcissistic traits that we all have are amped up to an extreme in somebody to the point where emotional or physical violence can take place. So Thank you again so, so much for tuning in, and I will be back week after next with another episode. Bye. Hi, survivors and thrivers. Welcome to another episode of the Narcissism Podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and just a quick note before we get started, I want to first say thank you for being patient. I am about a week late posting this new episode. I've been really busy getting my new office set up, and I am hoping that the audio quality on my episodes keeps improving with this new setup that I'm working on. If you have any feedback for me about how the audio is sounding or any recommendations about podcasting audio equipment and setups, please feel free to educate me. I am totally open to any ideas. And just another quick note before we get started, I wanted to just say that this week, this past couple of weeks, I just want to be very honest with my audience that it's been kind of hard lately to feel motivation to do things because of COVID and essentially being on lockdown again. Personally, I really don't leave the house very much. I work from home. My child is home with me all the time. I've basically been on quarantine mode again lately. And it's been really wearing on me. It's been really hard to find the motivation to want to make episodes and want to record. So while yes, I was getting my office set up, I was also kind of procrastinating on recording because again, my motivation levels have just been very low. So I Just want to give a little shout out to anybody out there that may be feeling the same way right now. You are not alone. I feel you and you are seen and appreciated and heard. And to all of our healthcare workers out there, 
servers, first responders, anybody that is just working and existing in the universe, anybody who's not working and existing in the universe right now, I just want you to know that you're not alone and that I know that there are some days that can be really hard and maybe this podcast can serve as some kind of solace for you right now and that's all. So um, let's get into today's episode. As I mentioned at the end of my last episode, I really want to get into financial abuse and this may have to be a two-parter or something I come back to in the future because there is a lot to dive into, but essentially a narcissist will very often use finances and just general money issues against their victim And the reason they do so is pretty obvious in the culture that we have created. Money equals power and everybody needs it. Most of us don't have enough of it. And it's just something that is very, very easy to control somebody with. Even if you have all of the money in the world, somebody using your finances against you is a very scary and vulnerable thing. And unfortunately, it's very, very common. In a narcissistic situation, financial abuse can commonly happen in one of two ways. Either your partner has convinced you that they want to take care of everything related to the finances, including being the main breadwinner and dealing with paying all of the bills and moving money from accounts and paying the credit cards and all of that stuff. They want to be the person that is in control of all of that. And a lot of narcissists will frame it as taking on a burden of the household. Oh, you know, I don't want you to have to deal with all of that stress. And this method will most commonly happen to women or female identifying people from male identifying people most commonly. Uh, you know, it will happen as, oh, shouldn't you stay home and be with the kids and you can just be this like loving, attentive housemaker and you won't have to worry about all of the stresses that money and a job can bring. And in turn, they, you know, they love all over their partner. They love bomb them and dote on them and convince them to take this route even if there's already a career path that their partner has formed, if they've already had a lot of success professionally, a narcissist will twist and manipulate the situation to get you to either not pursue a career or to walk away from the one that you have created. And you become the housemaker, the guardian of the children most of the time. And when the abuse really picks up and the discard phase hits, and you're not able to make your own money because you're not in a situation where you can, the narcissist can very easily use the money that they control against you. And unfortunately, this happens very, very often where people are left financially dependent on the person that is abusing them. I believe in one research that I, uh, research case that I read about preparing for this episode, it was something like 95% of abuse victims listed finances as one of the major problems in why they weren't leaving, why they felt trapped in their situation. 
On the flip side, and this is something that I'm going to speak to more because this is what I experienced, a narcissist can downplay their capabilities. They play the victim or always find some kind of excuse or way out of working and holding on to a job. There are a lot of ways that moving from job to job or losing jobs consistently can happen. A lot of times the narcissist that is in the victimhood mentality can get their ego hurt at a workplace because their ideas are not listened to or they have to deal with authority more often. They have to fall in line. They are maybe not in control of their time the way they want to be. So they will twist and turn their positions at work to also be the victim. And a lot of times they will move from job to job very quickly. They will offer these grandiose visions of what they're going to do in this new position. And a lot of times the empathic partner or victim in this case is left paying all of the bills and also taking care of all of the other matters of the house. The victimhood narcissist and the narcissist that chooses to downplay their capabilities, they're really just not wanting to work, not wanting to put an effort toward making a home, paying the bills, doing all of the things that you are called upon to do when you hit adulthood. And this probably comes from either some issue with abandonment, some horrible example of finances that was set for them in their household, or having finances used against them when they were children. I know in my case, my ex uh, had a very narcissistic parent that used finances in the household as a weapon against her spouse and children. So my ex did not have a very good relationship with money. He definitely did not understand how to make money function very well in life. It was just kind of winging it all of the time, not really knowing what our expenses were, where our finances were going to be from any given time. Uh, We had no savings. We were really just living paycheck to paycheck and they were my paychecks because he would always find excuses to not work, to leave jobs very quickly. Um, Also very common with this type of narcissist is needing loans or new credit cards or just help with finances in general. My ex was definitely very prone to this type of behavior. Whenever we did get a little bit of money for whatever reason, he would always claim that he was going to use it to, you know, buy these things to invest in that were going to serve us in the long run. Or if he needed something that he, you know, really just wanted for himself, he would try to claim that it was for his work or for his business. Or, you know, he was a freelancer trying to make it in a creative space. So he would claim that, oh, I need this loan to get this piece of equipment or get this thing that I need for work. And really, it was just something that he wanted. And pretty much the entire time that I was with him, I was making most of the money, putting myself into debt, 
definitely not holding him accountable for these jobs that he claimed he was going to get that never amounted to anything. And I was just putting myself further and further into the hole. My credit score was getting destroyed. I had a couple bills go into collections. I mean, it was really not a good situation. This, while it may seem like he had all of the benefit in this situation, like financially, he was also benefiting from controlling me with money in a different way. Because while he was mooching off of me, I felt like I had no way to get out. I felt like I had no option but to just stay with him and deal with what little he was bringing to the table because I was just completely exhausted. And this is the tactic that works when you're trying to keep your partner in an exhausted state of mind. I was frazzled all of the time not able to make plans outside of just taking care of our kids and going to work. I was unable to really picture a life for myself outside of holding it all together. And this is a different financial tactic to create a victimhood mindset in, you know, in the other half of this equation. The narcissist has to have that narcissistic supply that I've talked about so many times. And it really feeds the ego to know that you hold this much control over somebody, that somebody is struggling to pay their bills or buy groceries or do anything extra for themselves. I would walk through, you know, Target and not be able to buy the simplest things for myself for myself without feeling very, very stressed out or without having my ex question me on why I was buying that for myself or why I needed that more expensive mascara or that foundation or, you know, that new pair of shoes that I wanted. It was always, well, we could have just saved that money and spent it on groceries or a bill or whatever. And while I was the one that was paying all of the bills and dealing with all of the finances, he still felt entitled to have a say over where the money that I was making was going. And this is a common, common thread that you will hear about in narcissistic relationships. It happens very, very often where there is some kind of financial abuse happening. It is just one of the easiest ways to control somebody. There is no way to get around the fact that money controls a lot. And when you feel like you are trapped in a financial, you know, in a financially desperate situation, it's very, very hard to break free, to feel like you have the freedom to make any kind of choice other than just holding it together. And it's debilitating. It's completely, completely debilitating. I am extremely lucky, and I mean extremely lucky, that I had a support system when I left my ex that you know, where I was able to find shelter and refuge and I didn't really have to worry about homelessness or not being able to feed my child or just being in a really vulnerable situation. I was lucky to have my family to fall back on and friends who knew what the situation was, who were able to lift me up and support me. And I've just kind of figured it out. 
but I'm not going to lie. I am still financially insecure. I have a lot of apprehension when it comes to finances and dealing with my money and where it's going. I have a lot of trauma around this topic. I am definitely not financially where I want to be. My credit score is still recovering. My everything is still recovering. I have a lot of stuff that I'm still working on when it comes to this. And I feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt surrounding this topic. It's embarrassing, even as I record this to talk about this, because I feel like I did it to myself. It's hard not to blame myself and to just say, well, that's what you deserve, because you let it happen. You signed those loan papers, you signed those credit card papers, you dealt with those money issues the way that you did. And you didn't speak up, you didn't say anything. But the thing is that I did, I would beg my ex to just get a part-time job working at Starbucks and just work 15 hours a week, bring home $200 and just pay for the groceries. You know, that's all I wanted. I just wanted a little tiny, tiny sliver of help. And he would find any excuse under the sun to not work. Or when he did start working, his boss was toxic or the job was too wearing or too stressful. I mean, at one point, He was working two jobs, but they were, one of them was unpaid. The other one is a very, very, very low paid internship. And he wasn't helping with anything else at all and was really bringing very little to no money to the table. And at that point, work became kind of a distraction away from our family and helping out with any other duties around the house. I mean, he would literally spend 12 to 14 hours behind his computer screen and not engage with our family. So it was either deal with this dynamic of being the breadwinner and being the sole caregiver to our child and being really the homemaker and doing essentially everything around the house and driving myself to a complete point of exhaustion or leaving and just figuring it out. I'm pretty sure when... I left like the day that I decided I wasn't going back home and I was just going to stay with my mom and figure it out. If I remember correctly, I think I had like $300 in my bank account. It was not anything impressive. That's not to mention the credit card bills and the loan payments and all of the bills that were stacking up that I just felt that I was drowning in. Also not to mention that I was paying for daycare essentially by myself while my partner was at home all day working from home, claiming that he couldn't help take care of the child at home because he had to work and he couldn't possibly multitask and do that and work odd hours, even though he worked overnight shifts all the time and slept all day. Like the lengths that he was going to come up with excuses to not work and when he was working to not engage with the family and contribute in any type of way. And just to keep me completely, utterly exhausted. Part of me wants to give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't know what he was doing, but I know better. I know better. I'm not going to sit here and gaslight myself into thinking that I took that on and it was all my fault for telling him to 
pursue what he wanted to pursue and that it was fine and that everything was going to be okay. And I knew that it was all temporary because I was just saying that stuff to myself to cope so that I wouldn't lose my mind every single day when I was waking up at 5.30 in the morning and commuting an hour to work and daycare, working for eight hours, commuting another eight, you know, hour home, having a nine, 10 hour day before I even have time to sit home, have dinner, have a conversation with my spouse, and then maybe get a little workout in or an hour of free time and go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. I was working myself to the bone. And on the weekends, I was cleaning the house, doing laundry, running errands, going grocery shopping because my ex was incapable, according to him. He would always find excuses. My stomach hurts. My head hurts. I'm too busy with work. I don't, I can't navigate the grocery store right now because they changed up all the aisles and it would just be easier if you did it. Or, oh, I was up so late last night working. It would just, can you just please do it? You know, it was just absurd. And I ended up being the sole person in my relationship. I was essentially a single parent married to somebody that was gaslighting me, manipulating me, and using me to do whatever he wanted with his time. To have complete control over our household and our situation. And like I said in the beginning of this episode, if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and your partner has convinced you to not work and to not make your own money, and in turn, once they started making all the money, started abusing you, started emotionally manipulating you, gaslighting you, discarding you, I just want you to know that there are resources to get out of these types of situations. I would also highly recommend looking into doing anything that's work from home, please not anything MLM related, but just some kind of work from home, anything that you can do to make a little bit of money. If you have family, you can reach out to, to go stay with and get away from this situation. It may seem impossible, but I promise you that it can be done. And I just have come so far in this last year You know, this time last year, I was releasing my first episode for my birthday. That was my birthday present to myself. Last year, I started this podcast and I was staying with my mom in her apartment, uh, sleeping in a bed that had no frame. It was basically just a mattress on the ground. None of my furniture that I had acquired over the years belonged to me anymore. I was still just scraping by. And I have been so grateful and so blessed to move into a beautiful house with my mom and to find better opportunities to make money and to finally feel back to myself a little bit. But as I mentioned, I am still really financially insecure and I have a lot of shame and guilt built up around finances because I feel like I did dig myself into a hole for this person because some part of me thought that I had to in order to have their love and to keep my family working and to keep my sanity. I just thought that that is what I had to do. And it wasn't. I was just being manipulated. You don't have to 
wear yourself out and stretch your finances to the absolute thinnest possible situations. I have friends that have done the same thing. I have family members that have done the same thing that have kept themselves from, from being financially successful because of narcissistic situations. And it's frustrating. It's disheartening. It's, it's scary. It's scary. But there are ways to get out of it. You do not have to be stuck in that situation forever. I still have a lot of work to do when it comes to this. I have savings to rebuild and credit to rebuild and just overall financial confidence to rebuild. But you know what? The first step to that was leaving the person that was making me feel like I was stuck. Like I was never going to get out of that kind of financial situation. Like debt just had to be part of my life. I just had to take a different path and it just has to be done sometimes. Sometimes things can't be fixed. They just have to be abandoned. And speaking of abandonment, I am going to go into that next episode. I want to talk about abandoning the narcissist, the manipulation that happens around that when the narcissist sees that you are about to leave or that they are losing their control. I want to talk about the language that they use and the manipulation tactics that they can instill in order to make you feel enormous pressure and guilt to stay. So that will be the next episode. We'll talk about a term that I recently learned, which is gray rocking the narcissist, essentially just not engaging with these tactics. So that's really what I want to go into next. But just to cap off this episode, again, if you are in a situation where you feel like your finances are being manipulated, I just want you to know that those feelings are probably there for a reason, as are most gut feelings. And if you are questioning whether or not you are in this kind of situation, I would highly recommend just hopping onto Google, seeing if some of the red flags that you are seeing line up with narcissistic financial abuse and some of the things that I've discussed here today. I am going to link a couple of YouTube channels that I find extremely helpful with a lot of narcissistic topics that I think need to just be in everyone's toolbox uh, for these kinds of topics. And I think that's about it for this episode. I just wanted to do a brief overview of what financial abuse can look like and just a little bit about my own personal experience with it and a note that it really can be fixed. You can take back the control of your finances as impossible as it may seem. I have friends that have claimed bankruptcy. I've had friends that have had to completely start over from scratch. I personally have basically done the same. As scary as it is, what's even scarier is living under complete control of someone else. You are worth more than that. You are so worthy of love that does not require a financial stamp on it and control over you. So that's where I'm going to leave this week's episode. I hope that 
the rest of your week is productive and healthy. And I hope that you find some moments this week for some self-care. And I hope that you keep surviving and thriving. And I will be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks.